Five scores! Rick Bud. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bud. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome everyone to episode 63 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things? Things are good. Day off today, no golf. I'm off <laughs> for the weekend. I got, we have our grandson coming tomorrow for the whole weekend, which is going to be a blast. And uh, so I just said I'm not going to golf. All right. Well, but you're preparing yourself. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep, I know the feeling. I got one coming to visit me next week, so I, I know all about that, so oh, I'm prepping boy. already. Well, <laughs> our guest today, Squid, was taken by Los Angeles Kings in 1972 amateur draft after a junior career with the London Knights, started in EHL, played a few seasons in WHA before spending 11 years in NHL with LA, Toronto, Chicago, New Jersey. Please welcome to the Squid Note Belief Fan Show, Dave Hutchinson. Hutchie, first off, thanks for joining us, and how you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you, Squid. But as we're talking hey, about golf, am I, I going to see you on Tuesday up at Bondhead? Yes. Yes. I will be there. Uh, actually, how are you spending your days? Nice to see you uh, in person. I'm not totally retired. I've been uh, selling re- uh, Remax, real, uh, real estate for Remax for uh, 35 years, basically since I retired. And... Um, you know, I I have a motorcycle I like to get around. I got an old Chevelle here. I got five grandchildren. Got a little uh, uh, trailer down on uh, Lake Erie at Turkey Point we enjoy going down to. So uh, things are good. Fantastic. Well, uh, I got to let you in a little secret, uh, Hachi. Uh, when Squid and I are doing our research on our guests, we go deep. We uncovered a few gems from an old friend of yours, Billy Gardner, from back in the Chicago days. So... Here's one for you now. A quote from Guard suggests, Hutchie was a hoot, scary times too. He also remember you, he thought you had a beautiful 63 Corvette, and you've just mentioned you have some vintage cars, so that probably fits that mode. Now, here's the one that I like. Now, for people of our generation, happy days, the famous opening with the Fonz, looking at himself in the mirror, figuring he didn't need to comb his hair anymore because he was so perfect. In my opinion... It has been surpassed by a line you apparently use while claiming your hair, leaving a rink each day. And I quote, I can't wait for tomorrow because I get better looking every day. And with all due respect to the uh, with all due respect to the fawns, that's a legendary quote, Hachi. My hair has changed since those days. Um, but back in uh, back in those LA days or in Chicago, I mean, uh, you know, looks for everything. Uh, you know, we weren't wearing helmets. Uh, long hair was in, um, but I do remember um, back in 69 when I was playing for the London Knights. Yeah, that's bef- before this time. Um, when For initiation, uh, they shaved my hair bald and um, it cleaned right down, which is right to the wood. I had basically shaved. And back in those days, 1969, hair was everything. So... Uh, my next day at school, I wore my mother. Uh, my mother had found an old wig somewhere for me, so I put it on and wore it to school. 
<laughs> Squid. Oh boy, that's that's a good story, Hazi. And uh, I know we we're going to get into a lot of them, especially when I played with you in Toronto. Uh, obviously, I played against you when you were in Chicago, not when you were in LA. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, and uh, you know, hey, you. you your place looks great there. Lots of stuff up on the walls. Probably a lot of memories in that room. Well, this is um, uh, this is my garage we're in right now, and um, it has three bays. So I got my uh, seventy Chevelle over here on the right side, my Harley here. This is my man cave side. So we watch the games. I got heat. It's a good spot to come. Uh, one of my some of my favorite. Um, Memories are, if you can see to the right over here, there's a picture, Enforcers for the Forces. And that's when we went over with the likes of uh, um, Tiger Williams, Bob Probert, and we went to visit the soldiers at Afghanistan. Here we are, here's Proby and I here now. And that's at a forward operating base uh, called Graceland, right in the top of uh, Kandahar City. And during this, uh, during this little trip we had, it was just Bob and I, and we had to uh, take, or they asked us uh, if we would mind taking a vehicle, driving a vehicle back from this um, forward operating base back to Kandahar Airfield where, where we were stationed, which was about 20 miles. And um, so we dress up as uh, like in disguise. And what happened, helicopter, we were with uh, um, General Hillier at the time and he had, he got called, he had to go and he had an emergency call. He Bob and I took the ride in the back of a, it was a Nissan Pathfinder. We had two, um, the soldiers that were with Van Deuce from Quebec, and they were kind of dark skinned with full beards and they looked just like Taliban and they were already under disguise. And I thought when I saw them coming over, these guys are gonna take you back to camp. I'm going, what? These guys, they looked exactly like the Taliban. So that's what we had to dress up in. We had to put, had to go under camouflage. And uh, first thing I had to get rid of was my sunglasses. They don't wear them over there. But as we jumped in the back of the, uh, the this uh, Pathfinder, the doors were all bulletproof. They were heavy. The glass was thick. And um, the guy who was driving gave us our instructions. If we get attacked from the right, go out the left door, and your machine gun is right here. And it was under a blanket. And I said, oh, okay. And I reached over, and I touched and there it was, the machine gun that I was using in that uh, picture that you just saw me. That's how we drove back 20 miles to uh, Kandahar Airfield through Kandahar uh, City in uh, the most dangerous place in the world at the time. And you see what's going on over there now. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of wasted blood over there, my friend. Boy, oh boy, that's a long way from dealing with a guy with a clipboard at the uh, first teeth squid, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's... Uh... It's a little bit different than uh, going into the corners to retrieve a puck, too. So <laughs> God bless those uh, soldiers for, for having to go through that, for sure. Well, let's uh, so so actually, let's go back uh, to you're born in London, Ontario. Speak to the early years of your career playing and then landing up playing for the London Knights and talk about the experience of playing for the hometown team as well. Well, it's always great. Um, what happened? My father passed when I was just turned 17. So uh, 
I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to stay at home in London, but I didn't have to uh, because I didn't. Back in those days, you got protected by your hometown if you lived in that town. So, you know, the likes of myself, Rob Ramage, uh, you remember Walt McKechnie. We were yep. London guys. that all, We didn't go into the draft. It didn't come until later. So I was living at home with my mom the whole time. And, uh, you know, we had some uh, we had some good years. Beth Quidlin was our uh, coach when I first got there. Uh, Daryl Sittler, Dan Maloney, Pat Boutet, uh, Reg Thomas is, is another former uh, Toronto Maple Leaf. Uh, Butch, uh, I should say, um, uh, Dan, do you remember him? He was a goaltender uh, for Atlanta Flames, and Butch Bouchard was our goaltender back then. So we had a we had a decent team. We beat uh, in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, we got up against Roger Nielsen and uh, Peterborough Peets. We knocked them off. And then we ran into a, uh, they, they allowed ties back then. We were playing the Marlies and we had, uh, had uh, went into an eight game series with them. And it was a number of points you accumulated over that in the games. But uh, anyway, they beat us and they went on to lose um, to the Memorial Cup winning Montreal Junior Canadians, which were a powerhouse back then uh, with um, Gilbert Perrault and uh, Richard Martin, et cetera. So, uh, that was my uh, first year in junior and then um, you know two more years and away I went to uh, play pro uh, my very first year in pro was in um, I got I picked by the Philadelphia Lasers of the World Hockey Association and the LA Kings uh, I didn't I didn't um, get Kings and uh, the UHA were coming in and they were making a name out there and they were paying more money so I went to the WHA for two years uh, my first year in Philadelphia, we had a character on our team. His name was Derek Sanderson. Yeah. Now, uh, you remember uh, Turk Sanderson oh, yeah. was uh, the highest paid player in the world at the time. A million dollars a year he was making in 1972. So this one day that we've got, it's after practice, we're in Philadelphia. And he asked me if I want to go and uh, buy a car. <clears throat> I says, okay, I got nothing going on today. I'll go buy a car with you. We get into the car, we got blue jeans, he's got cowboy boots on, T-shirts, and we head down the road. I ask him, I says, uh, Turk, what kind of car are you buying? And he says, uh, Rolls Royce. And I thought to myself, here I am, I've just turned 20. <clears throat> here I am thinking, Rolls Royce, wow. Then I said, uh, how, much, how much do they cost? He looked at me and he said, stupid. You don't ask how much a Rolls Royce costs, gonna go buy one, you just, Buy it. Oh, so there was my first lesson as I was turn, turning pro. Anyway, we walk into the uh, showroom, and there's the ugliest brown convertible Cornish, brown on brown. And um, he Turk walked up to it, opened the door, jumped in, and the, um, the salesman's come running out. He goes, get out of that car. Turk says, you get lost. Call your boss. And um, that day, but he made sure that the salesman didn't get a, a commission on it. He told the owner of the company, the, the road, I'll buy the car, but the guy that come out and told me to get out of it, as long as he doesn't get a commission, I'm going to buy it. And, uh, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Kind of crazy, but it reminds me of a story of when I got traded to Chicago. And I'm, I couldn't afford a Mercedes. I wanted the 420 SEL. I couldn't afford it in, in Toronto. It was too expensive, plus the taxes, 
So I'll go to Chicago. I'm making more, clearing more, and it's probably about $25,000 less. So I go into the dealership. Same thing. I walk in. All these old salesmen are sitting there. Nobody gets And so then I leave. I go to another dealership. Same thing happens. So I go home. And I'm like, what, 27, I think, at the time. So I go to I go back in a couple of weeks, and sure enough, same thing. The old guys are just sitting there, and then this young guy, about a little older than me, comes up and he says, "Can I help you?" And I said, "Yeah, I want to buy that black car right there outside." He goes, "Well, you you want to lease it?" And I said, "No, no, no, I want to buy it." And I said, "No." He said, "Well, it's like it's sixty four thousand dollars." I said, "Well, it won't be when we're done." So we sat down, I paid six sixty thousand five hundred. And when I was walking out, getting in the car after they cleaned it, and I'm driving by the window, and all these old guys are standing there like this, and I'm waving to them and I'm giving them the the finger as I drive by because they wouldn't come and talk to me. So so they didn't get the commission, the young guy did. I was happy about that. <laughs> well, uh, Hachi, talk about your first year playing pro, uh, just the WHA, and just some of your expectations going to that level and some of the difference you experienced coming from junior hockey to playing that, even even the WHA. Well, it's a big change because here you are. I'm just, like I said, I've just turned 20. I'm uh, first time really away from home. Uh, go to a strange town. I don't know anybody in it. Uh, actually, when I, when I got... One of the first games, I got hit with a puck in the forehead, and I, and, uh, I got a uh, my head internal bleeding. So I was in the hospital for about a week or ten days. And in there at the time, my good buddy, who I go buy cars with, Turk uh, <laughs> Sanderson, is in there in traction. He's going through this phony thing that he's in, he's got a bad back, right? <laughs> they went through that for a little while, and then they. But we're going. I would roll down. I look like I'm coming back from Afghanistan. I got bandage wrapped all around my head like this here, and I'm in a wheelchair, and I'm rolling down the hall <clears throat> to uh, to his room, and we're and we're uh, he's ordering in food every night, so we're not eating hospital food. We're eating veal parmigiana, but uh, just the very first game that we opened up in, in it was one of the very first whole week. Philadelphia Blazers were opening up against whoever. And uh, the Zamboni was late, and it was coming down Main Street of Philadelphia, trying to get to the uh, where we didn't play at the Spectrum. We played at another rink. It was on uh, University of uh, Pennsylvania's campus. And when the Zamboni got on the ice, it went around the ice the first time, and it just chewed up. So there was two feet, about four or five inches thick of ice, and two feet round. Turk goes down, he brings one up, he says, here's our ice guy. So they, they, had to, they had to cancel the game. But the key was, when everybody was entering the building, everybody got a puck with a Philadelphia Blazers logo on it. So an actual puck. So Turk comes out of the ice with the, and they got the microphone, and they're talking to the people in the stand. Ladies and gentlemen, we're really sorry, we got to cancel the game. Here come the pucks. There's thousand pucks firing down at these guys. Philadelphia, we're talking Philadelphia. They're nice fans there in Philly, and uh, they had to run out, get get out of there. 
that's our first game in the WHA. Um, you know, went on for like, like that. I played there for two seasons. I got a, um, you know, I'm, you know, it was like the King, the, this guy, George McGuire was the scout for the Kings who came to sign me. I was going to, you know, make measly, measly uh, and I was going to be for sure certain that I'm going to be starting in the minors. I'm not going to be making the big team and I'm going on and on and on. So, um, you know, I, the uh, WHA was a good stepping stone for me. And then uh, as soon as I played out that con, I signed with the LA, a, a four-year deal. And, and uh, you know, LA, you know, things, I got some real good coaching there from Bob Polford. And he told me how Dave Hutchison is supposed to play the game of hockey. And that was, I was allowed to hang on to the puck for one second. That was it. So when the puck comes to me, I already had to know what I was going to be doing with it. I'm serious. I had to know. And if I didn't, if I tried to carry it, like, you know, Kirk Sanderson behind me there now, playing with St. Louis Blues. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if I'm carrying the puck at all, then I get benched. And that's what to do. I had, you know, place I'm digging the puck out from behind the net. But somebody passed the puck. I already know where it was going. And I'd uh, be moving it right away. And then uh, I'd become a better player. Uh, he told me how to be, uh, you know, smarter, being aggressive. This is all Bob Pulford now. And I uh, ended up having four good seasons there. And when I played out that contract, I signed with the Leafs as a free agent. And that's the team I wanted to play for. Squid, you know what that's like? I had some... Mm -hmm. Well, Dave, just before you get into or, the Leafs, let's go back. I want to go back to the uh, WHA just for, for a moment here. And going through those first two years, Philadelphia and Vancouver. So now, I, how did you end up in Vancouver first off? And the second thing I want to ask you was how you, the WHA, going through pro, here you're a young kid, come from London. So, I mean, anything's going on throughout the year. WHA is some crazy stories guys have told us. But some of the stuff going on that leaving you shaking your head thinking this is pro hockey. Well, to answer the first question, uh, the team was sold and it became, it went from the Philadelphia Blazers yeah. and became the Vancouver Blazers. That's right. Uh, that's how we ended up there. But, um, you know, what was the second question? Well, just some of the crazy stuff that went on. You're just shaking your head. This is supposed to be pro hockey. We, like we heard about checks not clearing and, you know, going to whether you're going to get paid, all these type of things, you know, and like the Zamboni breaking down, but all this yeah. kind of crazy no, stuff. The it's teams. Not supposed to be pro. Yeah. Uh, no, the teams I ever played for, I never, ever got a check that uh, did not cash. Okay. Um, for me, don't forget, I'm just coming out of junior. I don't know. This is first, firsthand for me. You know, it, it was obviously different when we come to the NHL. Everything was more first class. But, you know, they tried to make it as first class as they could, the owners that we had. And, uh, you know, we flew. Uh, uh, Jim Patterson was the owner of uh, Vancouver Blazers. And uh, he was a big car dealer out there, so we all had cars, and um, you know he he made it real good for us. And we were we we're playing in the same rink as the uh, Canucks, so they were trying to you know keep us up there in a standard that was kind of equal to the Canucks. And uh, so no, it, it was good. It, I had no problem with the WHA at all my first two years, but um, you know then I went to LA, and um, once I was there. Um, I, I actually, I roomed with Bob Nevin my first two years out there. Nevy and I were the only two single guys on the year. We were, we were like the odd couple. 
I was, I was 22 and he was 36. Debbie had already gone through three wives. So we were the only single guys out there. So we, we had a ball out there and uh, we weren't allowed to go into the forum club, which was the bar in the, in the arena, in the LA forum. That's where the Kings used to play. They're at the Staples Center now, but back when we played, it was a forum. And uh, allowed to go upstairs to the Forum Club Bar. And that's off limits to pretty much any rink in the NHL. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to go to the bar game. Uh, so Nebby and I would go in there because that's, of course, where all the action was. And this one day I come up and this guy comes up to me. I'm standing at the bar and he says to me, uh, yeah, hey, uh, Dave Hutchison. He says, I like the way you play. He says, uh, my name's Glenn Fry. He says, I play with a uh, rock and roll band out here called the Eagles. Have you ever heard of us? I said, no, I haven't heard of you. And that was, uh, that would have been 74. And, uh, you know, I, I hadn't heard of the Eagles back then, but we came, uh, we became good friends. And, uh, my, you know, he passed away about years ago now. Yeah, but um, we had a lot of good times. A lot of good times uh, going to see the Eagles uh, at their concerts. You know, in Glenn at his home in Hawaii and his home in uh, Colorado, and uh, so uh, those were fun days when I was with with LA. The uh, Hutchie, what what was it like? Was it difficult to play? And I mean, because I know I played in Birmingham in the WHA. Uh, LA obviously is a little different with you know being LA and and that sort of thing. But the weather aspect was it difficult for, to concentrate on hockey? Or I found it easy personally myself because I could get away from the game when things weren't going mm. good. Um, so give us your take on what you thought of playing in the warm weather climate and a place like LA where all the movie stars are and everything. Well, I can tell you that this is this is coming from the uh, um, Bob Nevin, and he would say he liked it out in L.A. because after the game or after practice, because we'd be done by noon, um, you know, we could go play golf, we play tennis, go to the beach. Uh, in Toronto or Chicago, when the weather's crappy, what do you got to do? So um, you know, we found it. We found it great. Another thing is this, great, uh, and Squid, you'll agree to this. When you go into any ring or any locker room, how they all smell the same, and uh, away you go. You, uh, you know, you went in the rink, you know, throw a bash on there playing goal first, the little guy. Yep. But um, no, um, every rink smells the same when you get inside there, Squid. And um, yeah. so you turn, you turn your game on and – and uh, play the game. Yeah, I did. I I kind of just thought because I I thought the same thing when I was in Birmingham. I loved it because, you know, like you say, you're done at noon, and we could go play golf or you know, like you say, tennis or go by the pool or whatever. Because I mean, it was seventy five degrees. It was it was nice and warm, and I I loved it. I thought it was great. Well, you see the players around the league now. Some of the prime places to play are all the southern cities, Florida, Dallas, Tampa, uh, you know, L.A., Phoenix, you know, uh, Vegas. You know, the, the guys are – they don't mind going there. Or Winnipeg. 
<laughs> well, I, I was just going to follow up your story on the Forum Club because I, I know a friend of mine played there during the Gretzky era, and the number one job in LA at the time was the hostess at the Forum Club. They were all fighting to get in there and do it for free because of the celebrities and directors and movie people and so on from show business that were in that room every night following the Kings or the Lakers. So it became quite a hot spot. And I know I was on that bar one night and I had you know, Greg Norman around me, Jason Bateman and about that guy, uh, MacGyver from the, he was the hot show at the time. And all these guys are all standing around and I'm standing in the spring. I go, what am I doing here with all these guys? But so it was quite the spot, Dave. Now, any other celebrity sort of uh, happenings with you? Did you get, besides Glenn Fry, don't get much bigger than that. But as a King player, did you guys run any other celebrities? Yeah, I got another guy. Yes. Um, I got, we're, I was playing for the Kings and we we're in Buffalo and I got hit with a puck behind my jaw here. Big Corab. So I had my, I was wired. This woman who was in, um, she was a movie star, but she was into all the vitamins and the, uh, you know, the health food. And her name was James. And she was, she played McMillan and wife in, uh, with Rock Hudson, one of the yeah. one of the movies or shows way back then. I don't know if you recall her or not. Yeah. She had long black hair, beautiful woman, yeah. and uh, we became friends with her through this injury that I had. Anyway, she goes off and does a movie in Texas, and she comes back and and um, she introduced me to um, oh, Peter Fonda from um, Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Yeah. So of course, you know, yeah, one of my heroes is Peter. So we uh, we went out and we saw uh, Hoyt Axton, who was also in this movie, uh, play one night up at the Palomino Club in northern uh, L.A. And that's when I met Peter Fonda for the And he says, hey, hey, I want to, you know, I want to take you out some night. I said, sure. So he says, OK. So we, he came by to, like on Monday night and he takes me down to the Troubadour. And he pulls up to the front door of my uh, where I was living in L.A. He's got the biggest red Cadillac Eldorado convertible, two-door, red interior, red exterior. And away we go, heading downtown L.A. to the Troubadour, which was a famous place for music. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> I think Linda Ronstadt was playing there that night. But um, yeah, I had a good time with him. Boy, tough to top that one, eh, Squid? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I, I think it would be kind of crazy meeting all those people. I mean, I know I met, I became good friends with John Candy, and I remember one time we are playing in L.A., and he walked into the room after the game. I was in the shower, and he goes, where the heck is Squid? And all the guys are looking at him like, holy cow, that's John Candy. And uh, so I came out, and he goes, hey, come on. Get your ass in gears here. We got to get upstairs to the form club. We were allowed in there, by the way, when we were going there to play. So that's where we went right after the game. And I remember John Candy taking me up there after one of the games. That's pretty good, yeah. Um, I one other on a lighter note, Hachi. Conversation now, being coming from a hockey town, LA, the team is still fairly new. It was only a couple of years old when you were playing there. Uh, you know, expansion team. Any funny conversations you recall having with fans talking about the game of hockey, which they really didn't understand? There must have been a few. No, it was, you know, we kind of hung around with most of ourselves. 
you know, it's not, you know, like we were going out there. The people that were coming to the game were educated. There was a lot of Canadians in LA, mm -hmm. as there are. So there was, a, they were making up a bulk of the fans. But uh, whenever we uh, went anywhere, uh, you know, we got treated well. And, uh, you know, we, we hung around Manhattan Beach a lot. And, um, you know, I think most of the guys, they all live down there right now in, you know, million, two, five, 10, 15, $20 million homes. Um, you know, Marty McSorley's still there. Uh, um, a good friend of mine who's a player agent, uh, his name is Ron Salser. When I go yeah. see, uh, when I go to LA, I stay with him, um, you know, again, all down in Manhattan Beach. So, you know, it's a real nice, clean area to live in. And um, no, I, uh, sometimes I wished I'd stayed in LA because um, it is so beautiful down there. And, uh, but um, we moved back here. Uh, and after Toronto, you know, I had an opportunity to go back to Chicago and, and live. And, uh, but we had family um, here in London and we came back here and I'm in the real estate business. So we, we, I have no regrets that way. We like Great where job. we live and, uh, you know, it's good and close to Toronto. Um, you know, we, we spend uh, quite a bit of time there with, with um, Rick and our Toronto Maple Leaf and NHL uh, alumni. Uh, going around playing games before the pandemic came around and raising uh, monies for different charities, uh, yep. including the Torch Run for with. So um, no, I'm. It's wonderful where I live here in London because of the location. Well, let's get into that then. Let's talk about the off season of 1978. You're traded to Toronto along with Lawrence Stamler for Scott Garland, Brian Glennie, Kurt Walker, and a second round draft pick that turned out to be Mark Hardy, pretty good player. How did all that unfold for you, and were you expecting to be moved at the time? Well, yeah, I we uh, I played out my I played out my four year contract. I was a free agent, yeah. so I had already been talking um, with um, at the time. Not proud to say it, but Al Eagleson was my agent. Anyway, um, not only did he screw me, he screwed just about all of us. So. We're all kind of like in that same boat. Uh, he was agents with for um, Daryl Sittler. And um, between Sittler, who was my ex-teammate with the uh, London Knights, and Dan Maloney, who was also with the Leafs, and um, Roger Nielsen was, was uh, beefing up the Leafs at the time, uh, they got to me. And they said, come to Toronto and um, you know, would have anyway. So I knew I was, I knew I was going to be moved or at least, at least I knew I was going to sign where I wanted to sign because I was a free agent with compensation. And that's what the, the trade was that they met to go back the other way. Anyway, um, we get, we get, um, no. So I get a call. Now the league want me, but Chicago want me. The Blackhawks, and they they traded for me a couple of years later and got me from Toronto. That's when Punch Imlac came in and caused the trouble. But uh, so I had my pick between those two teams. There was actually more, but the, those were the two teams that I was interested in. Bob Polford was my coach in uh, L.A. and now he's the general manager in Chicago. You know they are interested in me, but I also want to play for Toronto. Because, and I got these guys, Boutet, you know, Maloney, McKay. These guys are my guys from London that I played with already. 
that are on the team. It's an up-and-coming team. It's just beat the Islanders the summer of 78. So uh, that that made up. That's why I wanted to come to Toronto. That's where I signed. Well, now, hey, you're speaking, hey Squid, before you start, we gotta set, I got to set you up on this one. Now, you talk about Alan Eagleson. Did he know your name, Dave? Well, I was my agent at first, and, of course, Bill Waters worked for him. I always just dealt with Bill. But I'm in Vancouver, and I'm the fifth pick overall, and I'm Eagleson's client, and he's with the Player Association, and he every he goes to every team during training camp to meet with the players and talk about everything. But wherever he goes, he takes his clients on that team out for a nice dinner. So he told everybody uh, that was his client where the uh, dinner was going to be. So I, I get there and I'm in this room and kind of had a separate room in the restaurant. And uh, one of his assistants came over and it wasn't Sam, it was somebody else and said, uh, what's your name? <laughs> uh, Rick Vibe, why? And he didn't say anything. But then I saw him, he did beeline it for Al, and then I, I see him whispering in Al's ear, and I know damn well that Al didn't know my goddamn name, and he sent this guy over to find out who the hell I was. And I was a fifth pick overall. <laughs> well, here's what Al Eagleson was like, because I was out at dinner many times. He was my agent for about eight years. So you're right, when we would go out for dinner and then he'd get us all in that nice, comfortable, private room, and then he'd get up and take the take the mic, or he'd stand up and go around the room and belittle everybody. And he'd do the same thing when he came into our locker room at training camp, talked about also, he'd come in, he was our fearless leader, our head of our PA, and uh, do the same thing. And he'd come in, and if anybody uh, had a question or, or, you know, he would just go off on them. Yeah. Didn't matter who it was. But he also, he also always had the big guys that were in his corner. So in Chicago, it was Tony Esposito. In Philly, it was Bobby Clark. In Toronto, it was Daryl. In Long Island, it was Trottier. He always had those LA, guys in his LA, head. Marcel Dion. You know, Marcel Dion. Every, every, they always had the big guys. And, you know, granted, he represented a lot of them back in those days. Bobby Orr was his very first client. Look what he did to him. No, he, uh, he got us all and, uh, you know, charged us way too much back then. And, uh, but he did have power. So I was going to say, all right, yeah. so now you're in Toronto, Dave. Um, what went wrong? And I'm suspecting the name Punch Inlock is going okay. to come up. Oh, Squid, you can set it up. Go ahead. All right. So things kind of turned sour after a, a short period of time in Toronto. Uh, Punch heavily involved in all of the crap that was going on. So there's two goddamn great stories <laughs> involving you. One was at the airport, and one was after you got traded to Chicago. Walk us through those two instances. Okay, uh, I'll go back a little bit. We're um, the, we're having problems. 
Punch had, Punch had come in. He said he wasn't going to trade anybody until Christmas. And right after Christmas, away went Papoutet and Lanny Marlowe. And Daryl came in after warm-up and we were in the back room, like, uh, you know, in the training room by the showers at Old Maple Leaf Gardens. And, and Daryl said uh, he had scissors. Cut this uh, C off. I said, what? And, and I tried the scissors and it, was, it wasn't doing it. He says, well, grab a scalpel. And, and you know, Gunner Room was right there. So we went in, grabbed the scalpel. And I came out and I tried to cut it off as neatly as I could. Wouldn't cut. I cut a hole about that big. That's what was this C, <laughs> the rest of the <laughs> And we walked out. And when he came on the ice, you wanted to see the crap hit the fan that game. Anyway, um, just, just before then, it was uh, just maybe a couple of days before Christmas, playing the Habs. Making the flame, uh, the our flights leaving from the skyport, you know, behind the airport. There, we had a little, little DCA chart that we would take. And uh, it's an early uh, morning flight, it's like nine o'clock or eight thirty flight that we're flying up to Montreal and game day. And Pat Boutique gets on the uh, plane last, and he says, "Look out the window." And we're looking out the little bubble windows of the airplane. He says, "Punch has left his lights on," so he's riding. Carl Brewer is riding with Punch Imlac to the game. You never seen it. You ever ever saw that before, where uh, a player would ride with the general manager to the game. Anyway, they're coming on. They don't see that they've left their lights on. We don't tell them. We go to play the game in Montreal. Of course, you know we had a good game. We lost like two to one or three to two, and uh, we get back, land down in Toronto. It's about midnight. Sure enough. His lights have been left on the whole day. His battery's dead. So this is, you know, this is like 1980. No, no, uh, no cell phones. He was stranded out there. <laughs> we, uh, so we're coming out. We're all know, we all know. And he's standing out there with uh, Carl Brewer. Anybody got cables? And well, everybody had cables. We're all driving Jeeps back then because there was a Jeep dealer in Toronto. So... I'm riding with Ian Turnbull and Hawk Turnbull. He's got cables in his trunk. So he goes out in his Cadillac, opens the trunk, pulls the cable out, leaves it and slams in the back door of the passenger side door and then takes a big swoop around the parking lot. And he's clinkety clank parks are coming off the uh, battery cables as we go around the parking lot and slowly right in front of Punch and Carver standing there. I'm sitting there. I got my arm out the window. He saw me. And I get traded the next day to <laughs> Chicago. And uh, that was uh, so we I, I get up in the morning and uh, I get a call from Bob Pulford. He says, Hutch, we've traded for you. Um, we're we're going to get you to go down to the rink. They'll tell you when you get down there, grab your stuff. And uh, you get a flight out of here tomorrow morning, and uh, you'll be in Chicago. I'll pick you up at the airport, and you'll come to practice, and I played the next day kind of thing. So uh, as that day, so I'm, I'm, I'm in practice, and I know I've been traded, but nobody knows. The trainers haven't been told, and nobody knows. It's me. I'm on the ice back like a fool. 
I'm running over. I'm, I'm, I'm taking runs at Carl Brewer. I'm slashing. I'm hitting everybody in sight. I'm being a real dink on the ice. Getting the puck when it comes to me, I throw it in the stands. And uh, so, again, after practice, nobody says anything. Punches keep it to himself. It's to me and everybody else. So I said, well, guys, I want to let you know, I've gone. I've already been talking to Polford. He's not lying to me. He went down to Scotland Yard, and it was a bar down on the Esplanade. And we're having down there. And there's 10, 12 of the teammates there. And uh, a good old friend of mine who's passed now, Jim Kernahan, used to be a sports writer for the uh, Toronto Star. Yeah. And he's walking down the street. Walt McKechnie spots him out the window and grabs him, brings him in. He's got his, he's got his um, like good reporter, a newspaper tucked under his arm. Brings out the newspaper. There's a full page picture of Punch Imlac. Tiger Williams sticks it onto the board, onto the dartboard at Scotland Yard. It was going to the place where they played darts. Stuck it on the board there. Well, um, that was it. No, it wasn't Tiger. It was Ian Turnbull who stuck it on the board. That's who stuck it on. And that was it. Nobody, nobody threw darts at it, which the story came out. There was just one dart, and it was stuck in his forehead right on the board. And, uh, you know, the story went wild. And, um, you know, a lot of trouble. <laughs> we got a lot of trouble over in that. Punch, Punch knew a big shot down at the star and got my friend, he, uh, Jim Kernahan, who broke the story. He says, I wanna know who was throwing the darts at me. And Kearney says, I'm not telling him. He says, I ain't telling him. And uh, whoever, I, whoever got young, maybe had the uh, uh, Toronto Star at the time, fired him. Kernahan came to London and um, became uh, one of the best, well, very good, uh, well-respected uh, sports writer for the London Free Press after that day, but a few guys got traded and uh, just over this thing. But, you know, that was when Punch cleaned out the whole team, like a lot of guys, Paul Mateer, Kenny, Tiger for you guys, sit, you try to trade, and you know how that all went down. Um, you know, go through the list, uh, Ian Turnbull, uh, a lot of guys, a lot of guys went. Patty Boutet first, Joel Quenville was our first round draft pick that year. I'd say eight or nine guys, uh, he let go anybody who had an affiliation with Al Eagleson was gone. And that's how that happened. And or, the if he was a friend of or a friend of Settlers like Lanny McDonald. Yep, that's right. Yep. Because he couldn't trade Daryl because Daryl, unbeknownst to the GM, had a no trade clause. Mm -hmm. Now, you're the GM. You don't know that? And he makes the trade to, uh, I think it was Philadelphia or uh, someplace. And it's noon. And the girl says, well, hold on. You better read my contract. No trade clause. Then Lanny. So that went. That was here. Lanny was a big part of our team. Well, there is a story that... Uh... We had, uh, I used to host a number of hockey events. We had some uh, journalists over one night, and a guy by the name of Lou Cause, he happened to be in the press box the night that Sittler tore the sweater off or the sea off his sweater. And he was sitting beside Punch, and Punch came in and sat down. And all of a sudden, you know, Sittler came out, and there's no sea in the sweater, and Punch doesn't notice. 
And he said, don't look now, but I don't think your captain has a C in his sweater. And he went, what? And he looked down over the ice and he was skating around and he apparently just went ballistic and started running downstairs and all hell broke loose. But the question I have for you, Dave, yeah. is, I mean, obviously it, it, it it's an obvious question, but um, was the room as fractured as it looked off from the outside looking in at you guys? And just how did you guys deal with it all? Yeah. Uh, then we had a real good team, real tight team. Not then. And then it broke. You're right. It fractured. Once he got rid of everybody, it was gone. And the team, uh, the team took a long time to rebound. And, uh, you know, when you look at it, Squid, you'd know without Wendell Clark back in those days, boy, would the Leafs uh, ever been in the doldrums back then. It took a long time to recover from that uh, punch impact did to the team. Well, it took, it took forever because there was no leadership at the top. You, you, go, you go above even the GM and you look at Harold Ballard and who he hires as the general manager after punch, and that's Jerry McNamara. And then look at the, the coaches he hires, all because Harold wouldn't spend any money. And we drafted some pretty good players, but because our GM was not smart enough, he brought them in way too early and didn't let them – go back to junior and become the players that they should have been. And that happened to a lot of players during the 80s. And the only guy that I think was ready to play when uh, he was drafted was Wendell Clark. And other than that, all the other guys, they, they, they could have used another year or two in junior. And then I think they would have became better hockey players. Oh, I agree. But you know how it is. Uh, it's like now it all costs and, it seemed like it was back then, but you know, we he he really uh, when he hired. Well, you're right. Like, what about Floyd Smith, Dickie Duff? Mm -hmm. These guys are our, uh, coaches and assistant coaches and head scouts. And ooh, well, the one year he drafted the three defensemen from Belleville because they had a good track. They had a good racetrack in Belleville, so he just drafted the three defensemen all from the one team. <laughs> Benning and uh, I think Boo McGill was there, maybe. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you, Hutchie. I mean, as a kid, you watched Leafs growing up. Maple Leaf Gardens was an iconic shrine uh, to all of us. Uh, you know, you know the thing that I mean, how strange to have this perception of this team growing up, then to play for them, go under the crazy things that are all happening. I guess where I'm going with this is. You must have had some sort of vision going back to play for Toronto. And then when you got involved in it and you're just looking around and go, is this really happening with all this punched up and all the craziness? And I mean, it must have been a major distraction or a big impact on young players like yourself in a negative way. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah, it really was. Um, you're right. It was so exciting for me to come here. And at that time, that's when we had Roger Nielsen. We had Gregory uh, was running and everything was coherent everything was everything was up and up uh, we had a good team we, we were you know we got beat by montreal at the cup again that year uh but we were close and um then uh i don't know why punch was in a big hurry he he didn't well he didn't like well the one night we were there when he um 
He, what did he do? He oh he he fired he fired Rod Nielsen. That did. He fired Roger. Yeah. And then Daryl went. Who are you gonna who replacement for Rod? Oh, we needed a replacement. So he hired him back. I'm sure Mike, you must remember. Yeah. And he sure asked do. Roger to Absolutely. wear a paper bag. Yep. That was Harold did that. Yeah, he asked Roger to wear a paper bag <laughs> over his head when he came out to the ice so nobody yeah. would know who, that he hired him back again. And of course Roger refused. <laughs> these are some of the these are some of the things that were going on back then. Uh, well, Squid, you can add to that. Yeah, was, and then yeah, crazy, crazy what, stuff. What's, I mean, uh, what, you know, even, even, you know, when I got there, I mean, it just, it got worse. I mean, you know, Punch had the heart attack. Like you said, Harold wouldn't spend any money. Um, Christ, he, he, he uh, uh, canceled our charters for half a season, the second half of the season, because the flight attendant wouldn't let him have some chocolate bars because he had diabetes and, he got pissed off and he canceled the charters, which unbeknownst to him did us a favor because we had all those foreigners uh, checks and, and stuff had come in and we never got to hang around that much together. But when the charters were canceled, we stayed on the road all the time. So we got to know each other well. And then there was a, a, a more of trust amongst us on the ice as well. So unbeknownst to Harold, he didn't even know that he made us the fifth best team in the league in the second half because he canceled the goddamn charters. <laughs> <laughs> well, they used to come to all the games and practices, Harold and King Clancy. So this one night we're in St. Louis and uh, Ian Turnbull was, he's a real character back. <laughs> and he, uh, he had gone through duty free something. And anyway, he had a bottle of vodka. And we had the Gatorade or Gookinade is what they had back then, remember in our room? So we're in St. Louis. Yeah. He dumps the bottle, all of it into the uh, Gatorade. And in, after the first, in the first period intermission, in comes King and Harold. First thing they go, right to the Gatorade. Big drink, that's good, they said. But they were, uh, they were quite a pair that would come to every yeah. game every practice at home on the road uh, there was something to see those two well squid you've got a few stories about uh, back in the day actually actually after you left the players uh, boris salming told us uh when he was on the podcast he would go to the rink every day he'd see people standing outside the dressing room and he'd just think to himself what's going on in the circus today what's it going to be it could be anything from Harold getting his feet rubbed by the trainer to getting a massage to whatever it could be or getting taped and the players have to wait outside before they can go in the room for practice and stuff like yeah. this. So it was just one crazy thing after that. And then of course all stuff he'd be saying to the reporters just to get attention and then just go away and go about his business. It's great. I know you can add to it cause you just, you lived it all too. So. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was amazing <laughs> when somebody sent me a, a Stevie Thomas, I think it was, uh, oh, I think it was on YouTube and it was an interview and I think I said it to you Mike I saw it and uh, I, I won't repeat it but if you go and look it, it, the, the stuff that Harold said was just incredible and, but he didn't give a shit and, and the one thing Dave like you said when King was alive he kind of kept Harold in check and like you said they were together all the time and then as soon as King passed Harold just went downhill 
in a real big hurry. And he had a little help from Yolanda, don't forget. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Well, Dave, I'm the, I'm the player. We used, we used to have oh, to walk your dog. Wow. We used to have to walk your dog for her. If you weren't in the lineup that night, you had to walk the dog around the – take a bag with you because it was all concrete where it went, went for a crap. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, he lived, uh, he lived upstairs at uh, – Maple Leaf Gardens. That's right. In the apartment. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, Dave, we got a couple of minutes left here before we have to let and want to thank you again for joining us. It's one of the funniest teammates you ever played with. And maybe along those lines, we always get these from guys, one of the better pranksters and maybe a couple of examples of things that happen. Oh, just, you know, we everybody on their team had them. But uh, one of the funniest guys, Dean Turnbull, that I ever played with. But we had, we some of the guys would do tricks. Like, you know, one of the favorites was you'd get up to the room before your roommate did. And everybody always had a heavy coat. We'd come back, you know, going east in your uh, suit bag. First thing you'd open up the closet. So if you get in there before him, you know, you get in, in the closet, hide, jump out at him. We, when he got there, short sheeting, we, you know, water tricks, uh, you know, whatever we could do, rookie, rookie tricks. Uh, well, one of the best rookie tricks we did was uh, was against Rocky Rocky Saganuk. Oh, so what we did yeah. with Rocky is is um, as we were playing in Winnipeg in the old rink, and it had the hot hot water. Yeah, Winnipeg, and he's like he's from out there, right? And we're going for dinner that night at his house, but it had the hot water pipes going across. So we get him tied to the trainer's table and get him, you know, cut up and. So he can't see what we're doing to him. And, you know, first thing you do is you get warm water, you know, and you pour it on his face and you act like you're peeing. I'm, oh, no, no, pee on him. Don't pee on him. So he's, then we shave him and we keep him tied to the table. Then we get one guy on each corner and we bring the table out to the ice where the Zamboni comes in and out of the ice. We push him out to the blue line approximately. He's still blindfolded. He's still taped to the table, but he's all shaved and blackened. And then we get on the team bus and leave him there. <laughs> uh, well, he probably Rocky probably deserved it. He he was a pretty uh, yeah. he, he, he was cocky. a pretty cocky kid when he when he came in. Yeah. And um, then to make matters yeah, oh, better, we yeah. went to his house for dinner that evening. Oh jeez! And his his mother and father were Ukrainian, and they had this big meal for the whole team. We had everybody, coaches, everything was like something. We had everybody in the basement of his house on this big, huge table, and there was Rocky over in the corner. It was long horse face on, mad as could be, and his parents were just so lovingly, lovingly, listen, treated us so well. The whole the whole team, and I'll always remember that dinner. So will he. <laughs> um, while we're on the topic of that, now maybe a couple of questions here for you guys. For you, Hachi, the most underrated player you play with that should have got more recognition, and also along the same lines, that one player that stuck out who 
or maybe there's a few of them who carried themselves day to day, not only on the ice, but away from the ice in a very professional way. And the term today is used being a good pro. Yeah. Well, hey, Borea Salming, what can you say about him? He was always the last guy to sign autographs and, you know, um, so well. I rode the um, subway uh, practice into the arena all the time. Like, uh, he, he was, he'd be somebody that I would really, you know, look up with. Another one is Doug Wilson from the Chicago Blackhawks and uh, San Jose Sharks, general manager. Uh, yep. I played with Doug uh, for three years in Chicago. And, uh, but, um, you know, underrated guys, they come around and everything, you know, like, you, you know, who was underrated for when he came in with Stevie Thomas. You know, you mentioned Steve earlier and, you know, what a great player. And uh, I don't even know that he was drafted, but, um, you know, went on to play a great career. And, you know, so they're, they're, out, they're out there and they, you know, they come out of the woodwork. Well, actually, one of the guys that, that I think, probably one of the most underrated players of all time. And I don't understand why he's not in the hall of fame. And you played with him too in Chicago, Steve Larmer. Yeah, Steve. And, and also Butch Goring. So mm -hmm. here's Butch Goring's credentials. He's four Stanley cup rings. He's got a Conn Smythe trophy for MVP of the playoffs. He's got, Lady Bing at least once and Masterson at least once. So he's got seven or eight major trophies. Not in. Not. You know, Larmer, Larmer got, got a cup. But when Butch went to the Islanders, that was the missing piece of the puzzle that got them and they won four in a row the next, next run they went on. So I, I say him. Well, those are pretty good selections. Yeah, I, yeah I, I still say Larmer only because he's over a point a game, uh, won a cup, uh, was probably one of the best two-way forwards of the game for the entire career that he had. I just think that he was so underrated. And, and maybe because he was so quiet and, you know, didn't, you know, didn't want the limelight or anything like that. So perhaps that had something to do with it as well because he was a pretty – and uh, one of the greatest teammates I ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, you know, the hour went by very quickly. Uh, Hachi, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. Uh, any final comments before you go? No, just and, uh, uh, keep it up, guys. Uh, enjoy being here. And if uh, you got some fans out there watching the show, obviously, and, uh, you know, all my best to them. And we'll be out there. Fantastic. Squid, final comment. Well, Hussey, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, exactly. You guys be together. Okay, guys. You bet, buddy. Okay, thanks, Hussey.